Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, either because you didn't bring it with you or because you don't own one, there should be one within arm's reach of you, probably either near the chair where you're sitting or in the, on the back of one of the chairs in front of you or the pew in front of you. Those are put there for a couple of reasons. One, it'll be a big help to you and to me if you're able to follow along verse by verse as I work through the part of God's word that we're gonna look at this morning. One of the reasons we come to his word every week together is that we believe it has a perspective we don't have on our own, that it speaks with a life and a hope we can't find anywhere else. And so our job is to sit under it, to make sure that we're following what, what it says, understanding it and embracing it. So, so we're gonna keep going back to it over and over and over for the rest of our time together, and it'll be really helpful for you, I think, to have it in front of you. So you can see what I'm talking about uh, as, as we move our way through it. The, the other reason we put them there is that we would love for you to have this copy of the Bible as our gift to you. If you don't own one, um, we would love for you to take it. It would make us happy if you, if you leave this building with that in your possession. And then even more than that, what we would love is for the chance to talk to you about what you're going to hear from God's word this morning and what you may read there for yourself if you take that with you. So, so please do take us up on it and, and, uh, and that'll be our gift to you this morning. I've already mentioned we're going to be in, in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, you can find that in the table of contents near the, begin, near the front of the Bible. If you're not familiar with, with where all these different pieces are, are to be found, you can find it there. Turn your way over to chapter 2 in that letter, and we're going to read from the first 11 verses of this chapter. I want to ask you now, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. You can be seated. Perhaps the most shocking statement in this letter is one I didn't even notice at first. I wonder if you noticed it as I just read it to you. It comes in verse 2. Paul asks his friends to complete his joy. 
And then he tells them how they can do it. Guys, this is stunning if you know anything about Paul's situation. I mean, it'd be one thing if Paul was sitting on a beach under a nice shady umbrella on a warm summer's day with a cold drink close beside him in a comfortable chair and says to the guy next to him on the blanket, hey, buddy, complete my joy by handing me my book over there so I don't have to get up. But, but in fact, Paul's writing this letter right here, right now, from prison. From, from a prison system that makes ours, for all of its issues, look like luxury condos. With an arrest warrant to his name. A soon-to-be guilty verdict hanging over him. And nothing to look ahead to but execution. Which was not hypothetical, but, but soon to happen. Even the notion that we're talking about a complete joy for a guy in this situation is just stunning. But, but perhaps as shocking to me as the fact that he's even thinking about a completed joy in his spot is what he says will do it. What's the missing piece? Not his freedom. Not getting his life back. Not having his friends close by or a comfortable bed to sleep in or a full belly at night. What will it take to complete this man's joy? There's just one thing missing for him. And it's their unity. Complete my joy, he says, by being of the same mind. By having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind, that's the missing piece. That's how important the unity of the local church was to Paul. And one of the main reasons he wrote this letter was to persuade us that it should be this important to us too. Our unity as a local church is perhaps the driving concern behind this whole letter and perhaps the best sign of the beauty and the power of Jesus that we have and that we're able to offer to our friends and neighbors around us. Last week, we saw Paul set this unity as the main target for his friends and their life together. He says, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving together side by side for the sake of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. There's your target. That's what I want from you. And here... In the first two verses of chapter 2, he's basically on the same thing all over again. If the gospel's precious to you, if you've got all of its benefits, if you're enjoying encouragement in Christ and comfort from love and participation in the Spirit, if, if you've got affection for him and for one another and sympathy, if you have Jesus between you, then one thing remains. Complete my joy. Activate those blessings right here and be of the same mind. So how in the world do we do that? His, his goal is clear enough. He's been hammering it off from the beginning of this letter and he'll continue doing that for the rest of the letter. How though? We know he wants us unified in Christ. How do we get there? That's the, ver the burden of the verses we're gonna consider together for the rest of our time. He's shown us what he wants for them. 
showing us what, we, what he would want for us if he could stand here and speak to us as he wrote to them. And in verses 3 to 11, he shows us what it takes. I want to show you two, two things, two steps on this path towards the unity that brings God glory and joy for us. Two steps from verses 3 to 11. The first comes in verses 3 and 4. That's Paul's call to us. The second comes in verses 5 to 11. That's his, his model for us that he shows in, in the life of Jesus. Here are the two steps. And I'm going to walk you through them. Step number one, unity in the church only comes through humility. Unity in the church, the unity we crave, the unity he longs for, the unity that's the only missing piece for his joy to be complete, it only goes through humility. That's the only way to get there. And step number two, humility only comes through worship. To get unity, you have to go through humility. And to get to humility, you have to go through worship. There's the two steps. Step number one, unity in the church only comes through humility. Look with me back at verses three and four of chapter two. These verses give the same basic idea in the same basic way two separate times just to make sure we get the point. Uh, each of them is a, is a, a don't do this, instead do that statement, a contrast that says no to one thing and yes to another thing. And they start with what not to do. Each of these statements, I think Paul, Paul starts with what we shouldn't do because otherwise it's exactly what we would do. Unity, unfortunately, friends, if we're being honest, unity just doesn't come natural to any of us because selfishness does. <laughs> unity doesn't come natural to us because selfishness, unfortunately, does. Look at the first half of uh, verse three. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul's a student of human nature. He knows if he doesn't tell us, that's exactly what will drive our actions. Don't do anything from selfish ambition, which is wanting the best for yourself. Don't do anything from conceit, which is thinking you're better than you are when you're not. And then the first half of verse four, he says, don't look only to your own interests because otherwise that's exactly where you'll look. One of my favorite uh, descriptions of pride outside of the Bible comes in C.S. Lewis's famous book, Mere Christianity. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. If you're not familiar, please do me a favor and let me give you a copy of this book. It's so helpful. Um, even though it's now, I think, 60, 70 years old, I forget when it came out, it was a set of radio addresses that he gave um, on the BBC radio, trying to boil down the essence of the Christian message into a, a form that just anyone could understand and relate to. And he was successful by God's grace. It's still relatable, even these many years later. And one of the chapters is the chapter about pride and humility, and here's what he says about pride. He says, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they're guilty themselves. <laughs> there is no fault which makes a, a man, or for that matter, a woman or a child, more unpopular, and no fault of which we are more unconscious in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. He goes on to say that at the root of pride is its competitiveness. Pride always rises up to compete with pride. 
That's why we notice it so quickly when we see it in somebody else. That's why it bothers us when we see it. When someone else is putting themselves first or someone else thinks they're best or whatever, we we pounce on that. In fact, Lewis says, if you want to find out how proud you are, easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or patronize me or show off? The point, Lewis says, is that in each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party. I guess that's some sort of cultural reference. That I'm so annoyed at someone else's being the big noise. I wonder if that sounds familiar. I wish it did, but man, it sounds familiar to me. Would have sounded familiar to Paul. That's where he starts where he does. So, so how do you get to unity amongst a bunch of people when people tend to be selfish? when people don't always want the same things, when people don't see eye to eye with one another by nature. How do you get to unity with people like that? I guess one way you could get there would be through victory. I win, you lose, so we do what I want. You defer to me. That's the selfish ambition route Paul's warning us against. Could lead to a kind of unity, not the kind he wants. Another way you could get there would be through fear. We do what I want because I'm powerful enough to keep you in line. Think of the descriptions you may have read of life under some sort of strict totalitarian regime, you know, where no one can say anything about the dear leader except, dear leader, what you say is right. No one wants to live like that, though. Nobody wants that kind of unity. Paul certainly doesn't. Paul wants a unity of love. I mean, look at at the verses just before. He wants them to to be operating from affection and sympathy, to have the same love, to be in full accord. He wants a different kind of unity. So where do you get a unity like that when you're stuck with actual human beings like me and you? Human beings who, again, tend to be selfish, don't always want the same things, and don't always see eye to eye. There's only one path to it, friends. There's only one way to unity. That's through humility. Look back at verses three and four again. Let's look at the second half of each one, the what to do section. He said no to selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now the second half of verse four. Don't look just to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, true unity, beautiful unity, a unity that's worthy of the gospel only ever comes when we're willing to die to ourselves and lock in on the needs of others. When Paul says he wants them to share the same mind, what he he means is not that he wants them to have all the same ideas and always agree about everything. That's not what he means. He wants them to have the same mindset. That's the word he's using here. A, A same way of seeing things. A same way of looking at one another and at the world. He wants them to have the same approach to life, and especially to community. Be of the same mind, and the mind he wants for them is a mind that pays closer attention to what other people need than to what you need. A mind that's focused on death to self and serving one another. That's just beautiful. Wouldn't you want to be in a community like that? Wouldn't you love to be loved by friends like this? Wouldn't we all be better off 
Think about it. See, in, in a community where, where everyone just goes with their own flow, where everyone's just carried along by selfish ambition and conceit and a rapt attention on their own interests, in other words, in a community where, where I'm just being me as I am, unfiltered, I'll be the only one looking out for my needs. I'm basically on my own. If we all approach community that way, that means if I don't advocate for myself, I won't have an advocate. If I don't get mine, I won't get any. The needs of other people are always gonna be a threat to me getting what I think I need, and I'm always gonna be my own best hope for getting there. See, in a community where it's me first, I'm on my own with me. But in a you-first community, everybody ends up getting care, not through winning some sort of survival of the fittest struggle, but through the unity of love. Through everyone having the same mind, all focused on the needs of others. In a group of 10 people, someone has said, where everybody starts with their own needs first and moves on from there, you know how many people you'll have looking out for you? You'll have one person looking out for you. You. (laughs) In a group of 10 people where everyone starts with the interests of others, you know how many people you have looking out for you there? You'll have 10, because you still will be, but so will be everyone else. I want to be in that group. But I also want to acknowledge something that you may be feeling right now, Um, especially given that we do know how pride works. When you see somebody else putting themselves first, something in you rises up and pushes back. Almost legitimate fear that if I don't, I'll get run over. I mean, I can see other people putting themselves first. If I don't stand up for me, who will? Like maybe it sounds great and all, this view of community that Paul's given us, but but how about you go first? (laughs) Paul is pushing us in the other direction. You can see that. To put yourself out there, to look away from your own needs to pay attention to others, to take it on as a disciplined mindset. He's saying, in humility, count others more significant. In other words, do the work of considering them, of of checking your own self, what comes natural to you, of filtering out what you'll bring to the table if, if, if it's just straight up natural. Filtering that out and considering others as a way of life. Like, that's a vulnerable thing to do. You've got to turn yourself off to your own needs and trust that someone, somewhere, will be paying attention. It's kind of like a trust fault. How do I know they'll catch me? Or kind of like being the first one to show up at what you think and hope is a costume party, but you won't really know until you get there. Where do you find the strength to lead out, friends? To go first, to choose humility, to look away from your own interests and think of others as more important when you can't be 100% sure that anyone will join you. So unity only comes through humility, but we're gonna need some help finding humility. And that's step number two. As if he anticipated our hesitancy, Paul takes us straight to Jesus in verse five. Humility only comes through worship. 
right on the back of this beautiful call to unity, to this this supernatural and otherworldly and almost unbelievable self-denying love for one another, Paul attaches what is perhaps, arguably, the most beautiful description of what Jesus has done that's ever been written down on paper. In fact, many people believe that verses five to 11 are actually an ancient Christian hymn, a worship song that Paul knew about and quoted to reinforce his point. And that's based on how it's written, on the, the, the artfulness in the original language, the way that the, that the phrases support one another. And whether or not it was an ancient hymn that Paul used, it, it's clearly meant to draw us to worship. He's putting something in front of us that he wants to capture our minds and our hearts because he knows that the only path to the humility we need is worship of the one who humbled himself for us. Friends, I wanna just go ahead and acknowledge right here before I even get into these verses that there are vats of ink spilled on every phrase in this section. Um, I will not be going there as much as I'd like to uh, because it's really interesting and much of this is really important. I I don't wanna go there because Paul's focus is actually not on the big questions of philosophy or theology that these phrases raise for us. I mean, when, when you... We've read it already. I'm going to walk back through it. Probably you will have some of those. How can he be in the form of God? What does that even mean? And what does it mean that he's now in the likeness of humankind? And, and, and what does it mean for him to empty himself? And there are all sorts of questions that this text raises. None of them seem to be captivating to Paul because he's doing something different here. And I want us to focus on what he's doing, not what he isn't doing. I want to simply walk you through the three stanzas of this portrait of Jesus that he gives us, stanza by stanza, to enjoy the beauty of it before I come back over it again to how worship helps us toward humility. Rather than than, than getting at the questions we might ask of this passage, what Paul wants us to focus on here is the perspective of Jesus, what he had in mind when he did what he did, what he meant to do in his coming and where he ended up. Paul, just like he's been focusing on our mind that he wants for us, a mindset that he wants us to put on and have the same one with all the others in our community, now he focuses on Jesus' mindset. What, What brought him here? What brought him to the cross? What happened when he humbled himself? So we're gonna follow the mindset of Christ as Paul wants us to in three stanzas, three steps. Follow it with me quickly. Step number one, Paul shows us, is that as God, he made himself nothing. This is is in verse six. I'll read verse five again. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. This is the mind he wants them to have. It's the same mind. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now let's follow into Jesus's mind, who, verse six, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Perhaps your version will say, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What do we learn here? Though Jesus was in the form of God, meaning by nature he was God, in his essence, truly, fully God, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped, meaning that, that though the glory that belongs to God was his, by right it was his, he didn't hold on to that glory. He didn't insist on it being seen and acknowledged like it should be. Instead, he emptied himself. He, 
he made himself nothing and became human. He considered, it, it, Paul uses this language of, of considering or counting. It's, it's as if he's deliberating. He, he considers in the balance the weight of glory that was his by right. And what it would be to have that glory veiled if he were to take on a body like ours and live a fully human life like we do. He sees the glory that's his. He weighs it. He sees the veiled life he would live as a human and he does not consider that something to be held on to. So instead, he empties himself and becomes like us all the way. I'll give that up for now is what he decided. That's his mind. Friends, I won't pretend I can get my mind around this mystery, much less put words to it. But, but, but what Paul intends for us to understand is that the unlimited creator of heaven and earth, the one through whom everything exists, the one who holds all of us up and the world that we call home, the one without beginning or end, the one who needs nothing, who has no lack, who experiences no change of any kind without letting go of any of that divine greatness at the same time that he's God, he embraced fully all of our humanity. That means he took on the indignities of infancy and childhood where every, every meal he had had to be fed to him. Everywhere he went, he had to be carried. He took on the awkward changes of adolescence. And in general, he lived a life just like we do in a body that got sick and tired, that got hot or cold, a body that could be injured, a body that went hungry without food. And when Paul says that he was in the likeness of men, he doesn't mean he just looked like one of us like he was some sort of superhuman shapeshifter or some sort of Superman or comic book hero who only appeared human from the outside. No, 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 what, what he means is that he was in essence human all the way up and down, just like we are. And to get there, he made himself nothing for love. To live through what we live through, all for love. As God, he made himself nothing. Step number two in his journey. As man, he humbled himself. Verse eight, being found in human form, Paul says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took this humility all the way to death. And not just a death that was natural at the end of a full life cycle. No, Paul says, even death on a cross. You can hear in the way Paul says it, his, his shock at it, the scandal of it all. Even death on a cross. Paul's writing to, to, to Philippi. This was a Roman colony full of Roman citizens. They knew their rights, and they knew that one of them was, even if they were guilty of something that meant a death sentence, they couldn't be crucified. That was too far to take it with a Roman citizen. It was illegal. Even for you, if you need to be executed, it's illegal to execute you in this form because of the type of death that this was, because it was unmatched in physical agony. And on top of the physical agony, 
It was a public spectacle. In your deepest pain, you were fully exposed. And not with sympathy, but for other people's amusement. I don't know about you, I hate to be seen if I'm in pain. You ever take a fall that you didn't mean to take and it hurts a little more than you want to let on, but people are around and they saw it and you got to back up, jump back up and kind of shake it off and, and act like it's fine? You ever whacked your head on something that was lower than you thought it was or cut yourself somehow with people around watching you? I, when I'm in pain, I want to be alone and not just so I can say whatever I want to. I want to be alone because it's humiliating to be seen like that, even with sympathetic eyes. How humiliating then, friends, to be clinging to your life while the soldiers who put you there play games over your clothes. How humiliating to be thirsty beyond belief and have somebody use a sponge of vinegar just to toy with you. How humiliating this point of death, even on a cross, Paul says. And he chose this. See what Paul wants you to notice? He humbled himself. If all he meant to do was to teach us truth or show us by his example how to be better, he could have lived for a few years, taught a few memorable lessons, made sure they were written down for posterity's sake, and got, got out of Dodge while he still could. But he went further. He had more work to do. See, friends, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. When we sin, we don't just disappoint ourselves as disappointing as we can be to ourselves. And we don't just hurt others as hurtful as we can be to them. When we sin, we sin against God. We always reject the source behind every good gift this world has to offer. The one whose friendship we were made to crave and to enjoy. And the Bible tells us that the punishment of sin, what justice demands, is to give us what we've asked for, an existence without him, separated from him. And because separated from him, separated from all goodness and beauty and love and meaning that depends on him, that's what our sin deserves. Justice requires it, the Bible tells us. And the only way that God's good and perfect justice could be satisfied. The only way that sinful humans like us could still know and love and live with him would be if he were to take care of it. And so, he looked to the interests of sinners. He chose an anguish so terrible that it absorbed the punishment for every sin of every sinner who will ever trust in him. He looked at their lives and considered them to be more important than his. And as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And finally, in an unthinkable twist, from the lowest of lows, as the crucified one, he was exalted. As God, he emptied himself, made himself nothing. As man, he humbled himself all the way to the point of death on a cross. And as the crucified one, he was exalted. Verse nine, therefore, because of his humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see it? Precisely because he poured himself out and made himself nothing, precisely because he looked not to his interests but to the interests of others, precisely because he humbled himself, God has exalted him above all others and given him a name above every other name. This name is so much more than just a few set, a set of a handful of letters. It's, it's bigger than, than Matt or Jack or Jill. This name means title. It means Lord. It means rightful ruler of all that is. This servant who chose to bow down low now reigns and every knee everywhere will bow to him one day. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, can you see what Paul is doing with this hymn? To encourage his friends to humility, he calls them to worship. To get them to the same mind, he opens up for them the mind of Christ and then says to them, this is yours. It's yours. How does this help us find the humility we need through worshiping him? How does worshiping the one who came and died and was exalted help us toward the humility we need? Here's how. First, through our worship, we imitate him in putting others first. When we worship him, we'll come to imitate him. You always imitate what you love. I mean, that's the reason that, that, that tonight during the Super Bowl, there's going to be commercial after commercial featuring Patrick Mahomes selling hair care and products and energy drinks and footwear and no telling what other products tonight because people love him. He's amazing. When you watch him on the, on the field, you are drawn to him and want to imitate him, even if it's just because you buy the same shampoo that he uses. We imitate what we love. Paul knows that worship will lead us to imitation. See, see we've already got this mind in us, like a, like a battery placed in us through the Holy Spirit. He says this mind is yours already, but that battery gets depleted over time. We have to recharge it because we've still got sin inside us struggling with this participation in the spirit that's been given to us. We've gotta recharge our battery. How do we do that? Through worship, through careful reflection on the mind of Jesus. That's what recharges our batteries. Do you know what that means, friends? When you gather here on Sundays to sing, when you listen to the Bible preached, when you celebrate communion like we did just now, it's not just about the experience that you have with God. You're charging your batteries for self-denial, for a Christ-like love that our community can't do without. Your worship of Jesus, your meditation on what he's done, it's how you invest directly and practically in a church culture of radical self-denial. Friends, that's why we need verses six to eight. But we need verses nine through 11 too. Because through worship, not only will we imitate him in putting others first, through worship, we will trust him to take care of us. There is a precious encouragement in knowing that Jesus Christ now reigns, not just in the future, but right now. He's alive and enthroned. 
And when the Bible encourages us with that fact, it reminds us of what he's doing right now for us. He's not up there in an easy chair with his feet propped up on an ottoman, just kind of riding out the rest of this, of, of this life of this world. He's seated on a throne. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is actively interceding for us right now. That's what this exaltation means. He's got us. 1 John 2 describes him in his work for us at God's right hand as our great advocate. Now come back with me to the concern I raise after verses 3 and 4. If I look to the interests of others, who's looking out for mine? I know I don't have everything I need on my own. I know that. What if I keep pouring myself out and no one's pouring back into me? How do I have the strength to go first and to pursue other people? Come what may. The only way you get to that kind of humility is knowing that advocating for you is not your job. That's Jesus' job. He's doing it right now. He's doing it perfectly where it matters most, before the throne of God above. He pleads your forgiveness. He pleads for your help against temptation to be selfish. He pleads for provision for every one of your needs. And in his story, you get a little foretaste of yours. The humble, just like Jesus, will be exalted. So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count others to be more important than yourself. Don't just look first to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. Father, this is our prayer because we know how, how sinful and selfish we can be on our own. Oh, we have so much experience with that. And we know what a poison that can be in the life of a community. And we want our community to be strong and healthy and glorifying to you. So would you, Father, please give to us the mind of Christ so that you get the glory you deserve and so that we get the rest and joy that comes from being part of a community of love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.